We're here, episode 37, looking at coming out of lockdown. Now, it's been, Sam, a pretty hectic 18 months, to say the least. And social distancing, restrictions, lockdown, there's still the case in a few places, like Australia and Asia. But as my Instagram feed has been showing me, that there's a lot of things that are open at the moment. And I'll be honest with you, I think when we were speaking about this, we were pretty nervous about speaking about this because we, we didn't really want to harp on about it. I feel like everyone's known this for the past 18 months. Yeah, I totally agree. And even though a lot of places have come out of lockdown, I still think there are some lingering effects around in the world. Yeah, I totally agree. And that the lingering effects as well, like there, there's an anxiety almost when people are speaking about it to us about, hey, what does it look like to actually go back to normal? And it's people mm-hmm. that have been out of lockdown for like a couple of months now. There's a lot of people that are actually struggling with so much novelty, so much stimulation, so much social interaction coming from literally nothing. So it's a different problem to solve, but one that we thought was worthwhile diving into so that people are primed and actually ease their way back into what would be normality. Agree. And like living in Melbourne, we're just about to come out of the sixth lockdown here. Over 200 days as a city. Is that enough? Is that enough? Most (laughs) lockdown city in the world. Fantastic. (laughs) Go us. Uh, And quietly, there is some nervous energy going on. You can tell people are excited, but things are not back to normal. So uh, given that context, um, we thought, we'd brain to what it means for your brain as as the world opens up and we reach some level of normality and how we actually get there. And that makes sense because, again, this is a US stat, but uh, using it because it's by Harvard, so you just you, you, you shout it out. Go but Harvard. they were basically saying that during the pandemic, when everyone knows this, that you know 36% of adults, 61% of young adults were experiencing serious loneliness. But there's also something that's going on, which is that 50% of Americans in this particular survey felt uneasy about returning to in-person interaction. So you see this like weird balance of people are feeling lonely, but then people are a bit nervous to return to in-person interactions. And so that tension point becomes really clear of how do you do it and why has this actually taken place in your brain over the past 12 to 18 months for certain individuals? Mm. And and we know, we really know, and we're going to talk about this today, that collectively, our brains have changed over this period of time. So we're going to talk about that, but we'll also talk about the brain post-pandemic and some of those implications for re-socializing and and retraining our brain. But perhaps maybe the best frame of reference, jumping into this, is this idea of the the post-pandemic brain. Well, that is that is a phrase, mate. Coin that, that frame, trademark coin it, that. and go for it. <laughs> I would love to coin that. I definitely read that online somewhere. So, <laughs> so shout out the writer who wrote that. Fantastic. Uh, brilliant, brilliant little snippet there. But Mike Yasso, a neuroscientist at UC Irvine, Irvine, came out and said, we're all walking around with some mild level of cognitive impairment during the pandemic. Because based on everything we know about the brain, there are two things that are really, really good for it, which is physical activity and novelty. And the thing that's really, really bad for it is, is chronic and perpetual stress. Basically exactly what happened in lockdowns and the pandemics. And also we know that prolonged periods of boredom is, strangely enough, hugely stressful. So living through the pandemic, even for those who are doing it in comfort and coming out of the other end, we've got all these, these changes that have happened over a period of time, creating what some people are talking about as this post-pandemic brain. Um, where our, our brain has changed to adapt to our environment, that being lockdowns, that being altered living conditions, masks, restrictions, inability to travel, uh, 
reduced access to new experiences. And all these things have really altered the way our brain functions in terms of its response to this chronic stress over that period of time, but then also adjusting to an environment where we don't have as much stimulation. And it's going to take some time to recover from it. That makes sense because the salient point of this is that your environment or our environments changed so dramatically and so quickly. It's not as if we had a nice ease into it of like, hey, this is what your new environment's going to look like. You get used mm. to the idea of it. It was like, hey, you're in this. This is your new environment. As we know, the brain changes based on the environment and your action set will obviously change as a result of it, at least the probability of it. And that idea of social homeostasis was something that came across my desk as well. And we talk about homeostasis being that your body is meant to maintain a relatively normal or average environment, so to speak. And there's feedback loops in your body. Blood sugar levels are a good example of that. Vasopressin and water retention is another really good example of that. But social homeostasis is the right balance of social connections. And hypothetically say that, again, we speak about the dumb... Dunbar number before, like of 150. Let's just assume you had 10 social connections prior to lockdown. Maybe that went down to five or it went up to 15, but it always wants this, this pressure of returning to that normal constant state. And if it's too small, you can't really deliver the benefits of it, right? You don't have the variety of social interaction, but if it's too large, there's potentially more resources for that, but also the depth is brought into question. And so what's something to think about as you come back into a world where that A, the interaction is changing or the medium or mode is changing, i.e. not necessarily um, you know, online all the time, but now more in person potentially, um, but also what that means for the number of connections you actually have in your life to maintain that social homeostasis, which I found really interesting. Mm, it's a rebalancing act, really. And if you think about that strong frame of homeostasis, of, of norm- normalizing it, what is a healthy level, you can easily see how the pandemic and even the the recent post-pandemic period over the last five, six months, 12 months, depending on which country you are, or a couple of days, if you're me, has impacted that homeostasis and shifted it or negatively biased it towards too small, um, isolated, and, and a lack of context. So we're really reshifting back the balance. And nature... Uh, had a paper that appeared, Nature's, Nature Neuroscience 2020, obviously during uh, said pandemic with Tomova Wang et al. And they explored mm. the question, which is they wanted to understand when forced to be isolated from each other, which is exactly what happened in the pandemic, do we crave social interactions? Is there a relationship with the dopaminergic system, which we've spoken about, the molecule of more? And the title of this paper gives you the answer. Acute social isolation evokes midbrain craving responses similar to hunger. So we talk about these baser instincts, right, where we talk about hunger, sex, and so on. Social interactions obviously seem to be on that same wavelength. And you made the salient point, mate, which was, you know, there was increased stress and anxiety-like behaviors as a result of cortisol and overexpression of certain genes. Um, But there's also clearly links to smaller social circles and higher cortisol levels, right? We talked about that social homeostasis and there's an evolutionary tale to take Darwinian book in this, which is that animals that lose their group protection when you don't have that interaction, they must become hypervigilant for their own survival. And it's such a weird thing to think about that you become more hypervigilant while you're locked in your house. Like, <laughs> which is which is the ultimate like weird thing to think about. But again, this classic case of our brain or our sort of evolutionary hardwiring not being responsive to our environment, that's obviously accelerated massively. So yeah, I just thought that'd be a, an interesting point to raise given we talk about rejection, we talk about exclusion um, in this in this context of coming back from lockdown. 
And we also talk about the thing that you brought up and I think is really important is the idea of the higher cortisol levels, the, the increase in glucocorticoids in the brain, which has been shown in some research I was reading the other day to influence or enlarge in the regions of our brain responsible for being hypervigilant. So you actually see a strengthening of the amygdala, which grows and enlarges in that state, and a reduction in the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex is a shrinking mechanism to protect it the brain from stress, which we're experiencing during lockdown. So it actually makes a lot of sense that we become hypervigilant for our own survival because this fear response controller in our brain, the amygdala, the, the emotional salience machine is growing while our memory centers and our thinking centers are actually kind of shrinking due to overall exposure to stress over a chronic period of time. And, and I think the point that's raised here is it like it's highly likely that coming back, we're probably going to be all a little bit more awkward in our social mm. interactions to begin with. Like, it's not going to be like, hey, this is great. Let's go bang. And like, that's how people are acting. But there's a very different um, difference between the anticipation of what something, what you think something's going to be and what it actually ends up looking like. Oh, absolutely. And I think it was a bit of an anecdote, right? I'm thinking about when Please. I came, came out of lockdown the fifth lockdown, only five. Oh, okay, five, five. Okay, <laughs> five lockdowns. Came out of lockdown. Uh, and the first thing we did was go to a pub with a couple of friends, maybe five or six of us. Yeah, we sat down to have a beer and have a bit of a chat, have a bit of a yarn. And I noticed something. I noticed my ability to make small talk gone. My ability wow. to 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 make banter eroded. I was so awkward and a little bit nervous in these conversations with these people that I was super excited to see at the same time. And that's because there's a body of research which shows that our social skills atrophy with disuse. And what that means is we don't talk to people, we get worse at talking to people. It's the same thing as if you didn't play a sport or play a hobby, play an instrument for a year or two, you come back, you're rusty, naturally. Or, you know, you don't work out over the summer break. You come back into the gym. That first session, you're uh, pretty weak. Such, such heavy doms as well <laughs> the day <laughs> after. <laughs> yeah, the social fitness. So much like our muscles, we have these social muscles in our brain, which are actually just synaptic connections between regions and the connectivity between regions and our language centers and our emotion that become weaker as we don't use them or as we're forced to use them in a context that is digital through screen, through Zoom, as opposed to face-to-face with so many more cues. And what that means is our brain forgets how to effectively converse with other people and co-workers face-to-face. So this biological response to isolation and working from home communication, says Dr. Stephanie Capoccio of the Brain Dynamics Lab, is teaching us to forget how to be human face-to-face. And I've noticed that. We're all kind of a little bit more socially awkward post-pandemic as a result, And just to kind of cap off this point, there's a lot of research done on prisoners, on hermits, on soldiers, on astronauts, on even groups who got stuck out in the Antarctic, polar explorers uh, and the like, who found that people in extended periods of isolation come back and their social skills just completely atrophy away. They're, They're unable to make conversation at the same level because their brain has not been practicing that. So this is a point for the people coming back out of lockdown or even the ones who've been out of lockdown for a little bit, if you feel a bit socially awkward, it's not really your fault. Your brain just needs a bit of practice to get back into it. And we, again, we harp on the point of neuroplasticity, right, which is the brain can change itself by what you do in response to your environment. Mm. The way I'm thinking about this, as you say, especially those long conversations, those are the ones that seem to create the most anxiety is like we haven't, most of the mode of communication has largely been online and it's probably been hypothetically a bit shorter. Short form. 
and short form and now you're going into like a long form Joe Rogan podcast for three to four hours where you need to, you're going to be asking questions, you're going to be trying to understand. Maybe you'll be excited by the novelty, but as you said, mm. it's all about reps. Like if you've owned across lockdown every week, you've only been doing it five times or maybe zero times and now you're going into a situation where you require it mm. 10, 15, 20 times a week, that's a really big jump and there's not really any training wheels for it either. Absolutely. And not only that, we, we're lacking some of the novelty in terms of events and what we can talk about. That is actually such a good point. Like the stimulus components, like, hey, like everyone's been talking, hey, how's lockdown? How's, how's COVID? Lockdown? Like, that's the first thing. It's become so monotonous. Game? <laughs> Have you watched this net Netflix series? Did you we're just really- say Skid Game? <laughs> Squid- I tried to say Squid Game. It came out <laughs> very poorly. That's <laughs> okay, mate. <laughs> And speaking of that, because we haven't been doing as much and we've been lacking the sense of novelty, I've, I've noticed personally in my friendship circles and a lot of people I've talked to here um, and even friends over overseas in, in Europe, that there's this sense of time anxiety. And time mm. anxiety is where we worry about where our time has been spent and mm. we start becoming anxious about wasting time. And there's time anxiety in the context of the pandemic where people feel they've lost a year of their life or a year and a half of their life. And they're worried that they won't get that back, especially younger people or people in a prime period of their life. And so they're anxious about how they're going to spend the next two, three years. Mm. And I kind of bring that up because a lot of people are so worried about having lost this time in their lives that maybe they'll start to take rash actions or try to do things to overcompensate in the next two, three years um, purely because of this time anxiety. Absolutely. And as you said, because you're worried about the time that you've missed, you'll end up trying to change so many aspects of your life to suit that when maybe that actually doesn't help um, and you're in for rude awakenings. I know like a lot of people saying, I'm going to literally travel for 12 months. Fine. And that's really, really important to obviously exact your free will and do what you will, but maybe you're not necessarily prepared for it. Maybe you need to ease yourself into it, so to speak, and experience things for as they are, because I think there's a coupling um, and again, this is not based on the neuroscience, but hypothesis, there's a coupling between the anticipation of this dream of like, I'm going to do all these different things and the emotions that you'll experience of positive, of joy and happiness. But then again, when you get there, do you actually experience that? And then what happens when you get there, when you're like, oh, I, I thought I'd feel this way, but I actually feel really bad, but I'm doing the thing that I wanted to do. Yep. And that's pure reward prediction error. You're getting yeah. overly excited about something coming up in the future. You hype it up. And then if it doesn't meet your expectations, if something goes wrong, you have a bad trip, whatever, you're going to be incredibly disappointed. Yeah. And again, not all doom and gloom, right? No, no. There is stuff that that. we can do about it. But I think what Mm. is highlighted as we go through this is just to know that stuff's happened in your brain. Uh, If you want to listen to this, it, it has happened. Again, a lot of it was, you know, sometimes out of your control given the environmental shift, but things are going to come back into your control as you actually move out. And there are clearly things that you can do. There's only a few studies so far, but it shows that social memory and cognitive function is highly adaptable. We've highlighted this on previous episodes. And there's one study called Social Isolation During COVID-19 Lockdown Impairs Cognitive Function, Scotland, in the Applied Cognitive Psychology Journal. And it showed residents had some cognitive decline during harshest lockdowns, but they quickly recovered once restrictions eased, once they were able to come through and obviously easing all the way. So there is good news with that, again, highlighting that aspect of uh, neuroplasticity. There is hope. There is light. The brain can change. It is, it's a really good point. And I think it's important to know and reflect on that we do have this capacity to change this, this self-directed neuroplasticity, especially as we come back to a new normal. Oh, God, I hate that term. 
But don't you ever say that ever again. <laughs> I, will, I promise I won't. Pinky promise. <laughs> Wrapping it up, uh, if you've just listened to this, we've covered a couple of things. Take a couple of minutes now to reflect on what we spoke about that was new or novel, what you see now in a different light, um, and what you still don't understand or, or what you want to think about more deeply because reflecting on this information is going to help you integrate it and then make use of it. And after you've done that, after we come back after the break, we're going to give you four brain tools for post-pandemic brains. And welcome to the brain tools section where we're going to give you four brain tools for post-pandemic. Kieran, we always like to do a bit of context first though. We always love a little bit of context. And I think a frame for these brain tools as we come out of lockdown and for those that may be currently out of lockdown but have struggled to do so to give you some tools to obviously deal with that, it's really important to highlight that there's been a lack of stimulation socially, emotionally, intellectually, physically, and a change in that, especially when it comes to your environment. And so the tools that we want to give you here are to either introduce that novelty and stimulation into your internal and external environment to really leverage self-directed neuroplasticity. And so your brain can change given the quantity and the quality of your actions, the same way you go to the gym and you go do your reps and your weight. It obviously depends on the weight that you lift and then how often you lift them. And so as we come through, these are your tools of the trade. These are your weights mm, lift. Good reference, good analogy to think about your brain in the frame of a muscle and being able to work out and putting repetition. Because if you don't put in the work, you don't get stronger, you don't get more athletic, you don't get healthier, just as your brain doesn't change. I thought you were about to go Kanye West on me there. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. But would have been a good jump off point. Uh, I'll just uh, hang on. Just let me write that one down for next time. Kanye <laughs> West, stronger jump off point. Uh, getting into brain tool number one, go do some new and novel things. Because your brain needs novelty to grow new synaptic connections, the connections between the cells in your brain, the neurons, to thrive and to feel good. And we've been deprived of that during this pandemic. Coming out of lockdown, as we come into this post-pandemic period, what you can do is to chase some new experiences, pick up a new skill, visit new places, try a new sport, introduce purposely some novelty in for your brain. Why would you want to do that? Well, we know new and novel experiences help you regrow or grow new connections across your brain. It's called synaptogenesis. And this novelty stimulation has been shown to actually engage our brains increase uh, our baseline level of well-being and life satisfaction. It's called behavioral activation in, in the psychology or the cognitive science world and basically means just getting out and doing things. Uh, and why it works is because you create these enriching environments, basically, where you're going into the world and you're going and experiencing those new stimuli, these new things, and this leads to the growth of new brain cells uh, in the research um, in animal models and human models too, actually. And to elaborate on your point there, I think this we've talked about new skills before in lockdown being really, really important or doing new things, but actually because you're going into a new environment again as well, it's important to take advantage of that and mm. to seek, as you said, the novelty within what is going to seem like a new environment as well. So I think that is uh, also the point. Now, for you coming out of it, because even this is literally, you're going to apply this in your life right now, my Next friend. Next week. Um, yeah, how do you how do you go about? Yeah, this? really easy, and a lot of people probably already do this. But as restrictions ease, as as the world opens up, I'm choosing one to three new things to do that I know are going to be novel. So for me, 
I'm committed to learning salsa dancing. I'm committed to exploring some new places around my home state in Victoria uh, and committed to surfing. So these three things are complete novel experiences for me. And you'll notice they're all physical and uh, they're going to challenge me to do things that force my brain to adapt to the novelty of the situation, create these enriching environments, which will help my brain to replenish and regrow the, the connections. So that's brain tool number one. Go do some new and novel things purposely post-pandemic. I cannot wait to see this salsa Ooh, dancing, my friend. I know you have hips don't lie and you're going to give it a Shakira, real good crack. Baby. Yeah, it's going to be good. <laughs> it's going to be good things. Very excited for it. And uh, and bean lining into that is brain tool number two. So again, seeking novelty, super, super important as highlighted yep. for you, mate. Brain tool number two is aim for the small wins. Nice. Now, this is actually coined this famous phrase of small wins. Everyone says it these days by Carl Vike. He was actually an organizational theorist at the University of Michigan and Cornell University. And he actually has a very, his seminal paper, Small Wins, Redefining the Scale of Social Problems. Um, he basically has a quote in there that I think is really salient for this, which is people often define social problems in ways that overwhelm their ability to do anything about them. So again, if you're sitting there being like, hey, I need to actually do this massive, massive thing. I need to do massive, massive changes. It can overwhelm you from and stop you from actually doing it in the first place. Again, people trying to solve big problems with big actions. It's actually better probably to solve big problems with many small actions. Always remember that frequency and reps are your friend. It doesn't have to be the one big thing. It can be a hundred medium and small things that add up to that big thing. Uh, and so as mentioned, lockdown and COVID is that big thing. And thus big actions feel like they're required. Focus on your locus of control, achieve small wins through the small actions. And that, as you know, mate, leverages the dopaminergic systems, the molecule of more to build that momentum. One win, two wins, three wins. It's great to come back and say, hey, I've done 10, 20 things because that obviously pushes you and propels you forward. Mm, totally agree. And I think it's such an important frame with people I know and people around the world trying to go reach and travel for 10 years and do all these crazy things when the reality is, like you said, that it could actually lead to more overwhelm and you'd be better off building some momentum with some of those small wins. How does how does this look like in practice? You got a bit of an explanation there? Yeah, so I think if you're currently in lockdown again, because again, we were always looking at Europe and the US and stuff and saying everything's open. Most of the world still actually isn't. Mm. There's still a lot of restrictions in place. So I think it's important to focus on the small actions or the things that are in your control, as I said. So as opposed to renovating your whole house, clean your room. Instead of writing a whole novel, write 100 words. Instead of a big Zoom catch up with every single person, it's a 15-minute call. And I think the really important part, irrespective of your lockdown or coming out of it, is keep a list of the small things that you do and the wins, so to speak. And when you look back on those, you'll probably see a hundred different things that you achieved. And I actually started doing this, even though I'm not in lockdown, we're sort of like kind of restrictions in Singapore, mm. but it's been really amazing to look back through my week and be like, oh, wow, I actually completed a hundred things that is not just work-related. It was a bunch of things that I was actually doing in my life outside of it. And I think that can be really useful, especially for people coming back from long lockdown in a social situation. Instead of the the big pull of like, hey, I'm going to go to a massive party. I'm going to go to revs and give it a good crack. Just for people. Just kidding. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you go to like these massive, massive parties. Go and catch up with mates on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Yeah. As you said earlier in, um, in the previous component of what we said is be mindful that these skills might have waned, mm. right? The ability to ask questions, the ability to ask deep questions, to actively listen, to do all these things in person. Do the one to two small social catch-ups first, feel that small win, and then maybe go to 10, 20, 30 people. Yeah, absolutely. And be mindful that there's social burnout too. You can you can seriously overwhelm yourself, overstimulate getting into new environments when you're, you're out of practice. 
really good frame for myself actually thinking about chasing small wins rather than going for the the big moonshot, the home run out the gate and using those to build momentum. I actually like the way you thought about framing that from like a week perspective because I think, you know, if you spend a week going through and, and doing all these little wins and you look back, you're going to feel so much more motivated for the, the following week as a result of all those things that you achieved. Mate, there you go. And that's brain tool number two, aim for small wins. Really strong. And brain tool number three, your mum has said it. I'm saying it now. Your grandma has probably also said it at some stage and your dad too, is pick up a recurring social hobby. So we've been deprived of social interaction, starved from it, you know, connecting to each other via a video call rather than a handshake or a hug. The one thing you can do to rebuild up those neuronal pathways that snap the connections in your brain that allow you to socialize, to talk with people, is to pick up a weekly or a fortnightly or recurring regular social hobby that creates social contact and community and a space for you to connect with other people to practice connection. Yeah, a forum for you to practice Ooh, these forum. skills again. Not not that you're going to go in and be like, hey, I've got to practice my active yeah. listening skills right now and do it to five people. Hey, we're connecting again, right now, aren't service we? Area. Connecting? <laughs> I swear, I swear. <laughs> no, you're not. But yeah, totally with you. Yeah. And so from a science perspective, recurring social activities builds up the, the social connection network, so to speak, in your brain, strengthening it. We also know from a couple of different research papers that people with larger social networks have more volume of connections in the prefrontal cortex, amygdala, and other brain regions associated with social processing. So you are actually building up, physically strengthening and building up those pathways in your brain and those regions in your brain. Uh, in particular, there was a study called the Structural and Functional Brain Networks that Support Human Social Networks in 2018 by MP Noonanab and uh, colleagues, which looked at this exact concept. Basically, these brain areas responsible for socializing, interacting people, with other people grow and they grow stronger with the more people you have in your social network. So to implement this, my friend over in Sweden, who I love dearly, Jenny, actually joined a running club coming out of uh, the, the post-pandemic period, post-lockdown. So she runs with a whole bunch of people every week. For myself, I'm going to be joining a salsa slash dance club. That's right. The hips are not going to be lying. But for you listening, for you, Kieran, for, for anyone Finding a social hobby where you can connect and be with other people, uh, especially if it's physical, some form of physical activity, on a week-to-week basis is going to help you rebuild and strengthen those connection pathways in your brain and come back to, to normal quicker. And so that's all a part of getting that recurring social hobby. Recurring social hobby, that's it. Beautiful. And then the last brain tool, as we spoke about, is brain tool number four, build your uncertainty muscle. Um, Tim Ferriss has got a good quote. I think that uh, hits the nail on the head here. Um, He said, people will choose unhappiness over uncertainty. Mm. And I think that's become very clear over the past 18 months that the uncertainty part is so large. And so this is for people that are probably going to come out of lockdown and be like, hold on, we're going to go back into it eventually. There's the ambiguity of like, might we, won't we, so on, yeah. that this almost like a cloud that dampens your experience when you're meant to be you know, enjoying your freedom, so to speak. And there's a study that was actually done by the British Journal of Health Psychology in 2009 by Shin Taha at 
etc. Um, it was the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, which again, I completely forgot about, I won't lie. But the conclusion uh, genuinely from this was people who struggled to accept uncertainty were more likely to experience elevated anxiety. And you see this across the board, no matter what forum, work, mm-hmm. personal life, relationship, everything. And I think that becomes a really important thing to remember that uncertainty is still going to be around for a little bit. Yep. Again, of seeing other people, the question becomes like, you know, how do you actually go about dealing with that? Absolutely. And even the uncertainty of will I or won't I catch COVID vaccinated or unvaccinated? I think that's all that's going to exist for at least the next couple of years. So learning to deal with that is really, really important in this post-pandemic period. Exactly. And that's why practicing uncertainty little but often is really key to enabling you to get used to or build that uncertainty muscle. And it's akin to exposure theory. Again, if you looked at our wellbeing episode, that was episode two, right back in the archives, feel free to go check it out. We talked a lot about exposure uh, uh, theory and therapy, which is exposing yourself to a stimulus you know, as often or in the right way that then allows you to deal with and create an effective response. And so the easy way to go about building this for those that are thinking about it is, again, small wins start really small. Okay? And it can be really, really little things and especially the the reflex actions that you normally do. So an example of this, a couple I've got for you, instead of texting your friend immediately when a WhatsApp thing comes up, don't text your friend immediately. Wait a little bit. Wait a little bit and then maybe answer them five, 10 minutes later. You know, Don't check your news feed every day. Look at it at 6 or 7 p.m. Don't check your emails before you go to bed. Look at it in the morning. You know, Do this two to three times a week and in the long term, you're actually building your uncertainty tolerance muscle. And that becomes key, especially when these more macro, heavier things that, you know, have a lot of emotional weight of fear and, as we said, ambiguity um, that will help you in the long term. Mm. So I really like that idea of conditioning yourself to uncertainty with small exposures and kind of practicing being okay with it. Because I think it's not something we do uh, in school in particular, but also it's not something people think about consciously. So it's, it's almost uh, similar to something I heard Andrew Huberman say the other day where he practices uh, activating his no-go circuits or quietening behavior. So his desire to mm. check his phone, his desire to, to get up and go to the bathroom when he's working, he actively practices suppressing these urges in order to build this muscle. Same thing here, but with uncertainty. Yeah, it's practice. It's basically doing opposite day yeah. on one or two yep. things doing the opposite and then practicing that across time. And that is build brain tool number four, build your uncertainty muscle. Beautiful. Very nice brain tool. Shall we quickly go through, uh, recap the brain tools, one to four? Let's go to the chat. Right, let's do it. Brain tool number one is go do some new and novel things. Your brain was craving novelty. It helps grow new brain cells and connections. So post, post lockdown period, go try to do some novel things. Put them in your calendar. Experience something new. Beautiful. And that's brain tool number two then into aim for small wins, all started by Carl Weick. And he basically talks about focus on the micro to then impact the macro. Start with really small things and actually in small actions, really list them on a weekly basis. And it allows you to look back and say, hey, I've achieved 100 things when you might have thought you'd only achieved one or two things, especially outside of work. And that is brain tool number two, aim for small wins. Brain tool number three is go pick up a recurring social hobby Go do something that forces you to interact with other people on a regular basis because doing this is going to re-strengthen those parts of your brain responsible for socializing and help you get back to normal conversations and, and where you were at before the pandemic. And that's brain tool number three. And the final one, brain tool number four, which is build your uncertainty muscle. 
Keep in mind that a lot of people will choose unhappiness over uncertainty. The way to go about this is to actually expose yourself to uncertainty on a small level. That could be anything from not texting your friend immediately to not looking at newsfeed. Doing the opposite of what you normally do sporadically across the week can really help build this uncertainty muscle, which is our core analogy for neuroplasticity. Oh, strong. Strong couple of brain tools. I will actually be using them this week. So very excited. Comeback report on how they go. 80-20 for this week is. What have you got? Yeah, my 80-20 is, I think coming out of the lockdown is like, you know, eating junk food, a lot of junk food after one year of eating clean. Mm. If you do too much in one go, it makes you sick. Yeah. And I think that's the key thing here is ease yourself back into things. Don't rush it just because you might feel other people are doing all these grandiose things. Allow your brain to rewire to the post-pandemic world and you'll be much better for it, particularly your well-being. Very nice. My 80-20 is an 80-20 of an 80-20. So about as meta as it gets. <laughs> My 80-20 is do new things and do social things. Those are the two things that will get your brain back to where it was as quick as possible and help it grow again. And beautiful. And that wraps it up for episode 37 on coming back from lockdown. Lovely. And uh, that wraps us up this week. Next week, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, motivation. Um, Ooh, spicy. Yeah, some spicy motivation tips, how to get motivated again. Perfect timing, post-pandemic, go start a business. But if you are liking the show, if you enjoy this episode, one thing you could do that would mean a lot to us would be go show some love on iTunes, leave us a review or a comment, or go follow us on social media. Uh, we've got Braintools Pod on Instagram, on LinkedIn, um, or Kieran and I, you can go follow us. We're on all the platforms too. Perfect. Well, we'll see you next week.